Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. His heart is racing so fast, he can feel it beating in his chest. His palms are sweating, his, his mind is spinning. Sure, there were days when he allowed himself to dream, what if, one day? But to think that it would actually come to reality. I mean, the odds of him becoming the high priest of Israel. First of all, he had to be from the tribe of Levi, check. Then he had to be a priest within that tribe, check. And then this day, only one day of the year, one day of the entire year, he would get to go in to the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement during the first month of the Jewish year, which for those of us here would, would fall in, in September, October time frame. The Day of Atonement, what they today call Yom Kippur. He's gone through the, the protocol a thousand times in his, in, in his mind. There can be no mistake because not only the entire nation of Israel depends upon his actions today, but his very life depends upon it. Oral tradition would say that they would tie a, a rope around the waist of the high priest. He would have bells on his garment so that when he slipped behind that curtain, that place where no man was allowed to go except for this day, if his heart wasn't right with God, he would be struck dead, and that rope would give them a means by which they could pull his lifeless body out. It's his waist that the rope is tied around. He would perform the sacrifice outside the, the temple courts, would, would be in silence, 37 acres of people watching, staring at the temple, knowing that a high priest was going into the Holy of Holies. There would be a court of women where they were allowed to go no further. The court of men, the court of priests, the holy place, and then the curtain. Separating all of that from the holy of holies. The 30 by 30 by 30 foot cube where God's ark of the covenant resided. Where the very presence of God was. And in this state, with his hands shaking, he took the bowl with the blood from the sacrificed lamb, and he took the incense, and he went in, and he placed it on the ark. A remembrance of the atonement, forgiveness for your people. And if you made it back out alive before the people and let them know God has heard your prayers, the people would shout in praise. It all goes back to the curtain. If you don't understand the curtain, Nothing that I teach today will make a lot of sense to you. It was the curtain, as I said, that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. No one went past it except that one day a year. And that was only after about a week's worth of consecration and, and preparation to prepare to go in. In the new temple in the time of, of Jesus, the historian Josephus tells us that that curtain was about a man's fist with wide. On another holy day, 
not the Day of Atonement, but Passover week, years later, one spring day, the day Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. On this day, you could walk into that court of the priests and hear a pin drop because everyone is staring at the curtain. Everyone. It had been torn. It had been ripped from the top down. And this occurred at the very moment when Jesus Christ was on the cross and cried out his final words as he died. All of the sins of the world had been placed upon him. The job was now finished. Instead of an interest-only payment once a year by a high priest offering the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, the sinless son of God had been sacrificed for the sins of the world. All the sins of the past and all the sins yet to come. And as he cried out, God the Father tore the curtain from the top down, opened it up, and said, y'all can come in. It's recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Luke 23, it puts it this way. It says, it was now about the sixth hour, and the darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. So that would be from about noon, midday, until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Now today we just accept some sense of access to God. And we don't often get a sense of the awe of everything that they would have felt back then. But how mind-blowing that must have been. The torn curtain was a big, big deal. Today we're going to look at the incredible privilege that we have, those of us who belong to Christ, who, those of us who have faithed Jesus, the privilege that we have thanks to his paying the price for our sin, that curtain being torn, and the access that we have to God. We've been teaching through the book of 1 Peter, and it's a letter and an epistle that was written to a, to a church that was being persecuted, that was, that was going through some really rough times, going through the storms of, of Roman persecution. And today we come to, to chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, where he, he brings up this new thing called being a, a part of a holy priesthood. We're going to look at our privilege and our responsibility as followers of Jesus, and then we're going to step back and, and look at what does this mean for us today in practical terms. So let's begin with verse 4. It says, as you, and, and that you there is the plural you. It's like we used to say in the south where I'm from, y'all. As y'all come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, y'all also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What did the Old Testament priests offer? They came before the atonement seat of God. They offered, and they made their offerings daily out there in the courts. They came with lambs, and they came with goats and bulls, and they had grain offerings. And all that, it was like an interest-only payment that had to be done over and over and over again. If you own a house and you only pay the interest each month, you'll never pay the house off. They'll still be the principal that you owe. And that's what it was like. The, the interest-only payment there made by the priests, by the earthly priests. 
Jesus made the final payment, the principal payment. He paid for all of our sins, and we offer spiritual sacrifice. We offer a spiritual sacrifice, not to get us off the hook, but to give praise and to say thank you. In the Old Testament structure of sacrifices, they had sacrifices for known sin, for unintentional sin. And all these things were, were, were done in this, in this system that they had that all pointed forward to the, the final sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we offer spiritual sacrifice to him, acceptable to God. In Romans chapter 12, we're told that the ultimate sacrifice of thanksgiving acceptable to God is this, is that we offer our bodies, ourselves, our lives as living sacrifices to him. It's like climbing up on the altar and saying, God, I'm yours. What do you want from me? How can you use me? Peter goes on in verse 6 to say this, for in scripture it says, and, and here he's quoting a, a psalm from Isaiah. He says, see, I lay in Zion, in Zion, that's Jerusalem, a chosen and precious cornerstone, that song that we sang at the beginning of the service. You were singing scripture. The first stone that was laid when, when building a building was, was the cornerstone. It was important that the cornerstone be perfectly square and that then you squared the rest of your building off and then your building would, would be properly built. A chosen and precious cornerstone is laid in Zion. And the one who trusts in him, it says, will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. In other words, the same stone that's, that is rejected by some is embraced by others. It serves different purposes. It's a cornerstone upon which God builds, and he builds something beautiful. Or it's a stumbling stone over which people stumble, and they're shattered. And when people stumble spiritually, it's because they reject the message of the gospel. It's not all the intellectual reasons and things that people want to say. At the very core of it is, is they're rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting God's ownership of, of, of their lives. And so they write him off, and then they get what they're destined for. Now notice verses 9 and 10, the key verses in this passage. But you, and re remember he's writing primarily to a Gentile audience here up in, up in Asia Minor, these churches that were, that were under Roman persecution. You are a chosen people. Now help me out for a minute. Up until this point, who, who were considered the chosen people? The Jews. The Jews, under the old covenant, the Jews were God's chosen people in everybody's mind. But Jesus' death and resurrection changes things. The curtain has been torn. You, y'all, believers, are also a chosen people. Y'all are a royal priesthood. Now, there's something wonderful in that phrase as well. You see, when we step over that line and become a follower of Jesus Christ, we've talked about he, how he forgives us our sins, how he adopts us into his family, and how the Holy Spirit comes into our life and starts changing us from the inside out. When we're adopted into his family, we become part of royalty. We are full-on sons and daughters of not a king, but of the king, of the king. And now we also have the freedom of the priesthood, the access to God. 
that we're going to talk about more in more depth in a moment. Prior to that, prior to that torn curtain, prior to Jesus, this wasn't done. Even kings could not go in to the Holy of Holies. Even kings could not offer incense. One king did try it, though, King Uzziah. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, it tells a story. King Uzziah became king of Judah at age 16, and he ruled for 52 years. That's a pretty long reign. And he was, a, overall, pretty much a, a good king. You know, he was one of the most powerful, most blessed kings in all of Israel's history. He was second only to Solomon in his wealth and his power and the extensiveness of the kingdom. In his later years, in his older age, Uzziah got proud. He thought, well, God's blessed me, and I'm such a good king and all this. Well, I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to offer incense in the temple as well. And so he went to do that, and when he did it, he was struck with leprosy. And he had leprosy until the day he died. It's because there was only one one who was to come was to fill the role of priest and king, the one Jesus Christ. And as God's sons and daughters, we're not, not only a chosen people, but we're part of this royal priesthood. He continues on, he says, a holy nation. We're a holy nation, a nation, and we're not talking about the United States here. No, no, no. This is the people of God, the people who believe in Jesus Christ. We're a holy nation, set apart a different type of people. We talked about holiness a couple weeks ago. He says, a people belonging to God, God's special possession. And he's done all of this for a purpose, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that's the passage, a passage that speaks of a Christian doctrine that, that you may have heard of before called the priesthood of believers. The passage that serves as a springboard for the title that you see in your life notes and up on the screen, Welcome to the Priesthood. Now I want to step back for a moment and, and point out a few things here. You can see there's a section in your notes that say ancient prophecies no one really believed, and they're found in this passage. The one First one here is this, that the, that the Messiah would be rejected. They didn't believe that the Messiah would be rejected, even though it was in the Scripture. The cornerstone that was precious to the Father was rejected by the religious leaders of the day. It had been prophesied in Psalms and Isaiah and other places in Scripture, but even though it was there, they really didn't believe it because they fell into a very similar trap that we fall into today. And that is when we think that God is behind something, we think it's going, to be, it's going to be successful by our standards. If God showed up today and said, hey, I got a job for you. Take this job and I'm going to be with you in it. Man, most of us, you know, our minds would start going and we'd start projecting, well, I'm surely I'm going to be the CEO by next year. Is that what God said? No. He may have chosen you to be the janitor and want you to be the janitor there for 20 years, and that was his purpose. But we have, a we have a habit of taking things and projecting them out. We have a habit of doing things and, and thinking things are going to go the way that we think they should go. It had been prophesied of the Messiah that, well, let me read it to you from Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Doesn't sound like success to me, but this is what the Messiah came for. 
It's a prophecy of Jesus. And of course, we see it as he's rejected and, and, and crucified as a common criminal. But they never understood it. They just thought he was going to show up and, and kick tail on the, on the Roman oppressors. They didn't understand when the judgment of God comes, it doesn't start on his enemies first. It starts with the household of God. Just as when you're a parent, you don't deal with the other people's kids first. You deal with your own kids first. Do you ever have any, a parent like that in your neighborhood or on a team or something that your kid was on where the parent didn't discipline their child? You deal first with your own child each parent should parent their own children first. Your first response is in the family. And the judgment of God always begins with the household of God. But the Israelites, they kind of wandered about and, and disobeyed, and they didn't necessarily do what, what God told them to do. And they thought it was going to be okay as long as they weren't as bad as those folks over there, those other folks, those Gentiles. They didn't believe that the Messiah would be rejected. They also didn't believe the prophecy that God's people would be a nation of priests. God's people would be a nation of priests. At the time of Jesus, the Jewish people thought that all priests would always be from the, the tribe of Levi. The high priest would be descended from Aaron, Moses' brother. And there had been a prophecy, it's on your note sheet, the references there, Exodus 19, it's the first eight, uh, eight verses of Exodus 19, but I want to read to you uh, verse 5 there. God said to them, Now if you obey me fully... And keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's speaking this to all of Israel. And here's what's ha what happened. They've been slaves in, in Egypt for 400 years, and, and God, through Moses, delivered them out of bondage. And he leads them into the wilderness on the way to the land that was going to be their own. And at that point in history, the, the one who was the, the priest in the family would be the firstborn son. I kind of like that because I'm a firstborn son in our family. Um, that's, that's how it was done up until that point. And so God tells it, I'm going to do something special. You've been slaves. I'm going to make you all priests. I'm going to make you a nation of priests. All of you are going to have access to me. Well, unfortunately, that's not how it worked out. You see, right away, pretty soon in their journey, God gave them the Ten Commandments. And what actually happened is, is, is God gave the Ten Commandments, and they were spoken, and all the people heard were told there, not just the priests, not just Moses, all the people heard the voice of God. And they were all, in one sense, absolutely frightened by it, but in another sense, they were agreeing to it. Whatever you say, your Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes. Sounds like a good song. So Moses then goes up on the mountaintop to receive from God the tablets upon which God would write the Ten Commandments, and he'd also give Moses all the fine print, all those other things that you find back in, 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 in the Scriptures, in, in, in Exodus, Leviticus. When you read the Bible, it doesn't stop the Ten Commandments. It continues on. So Moses goes up the mountain to get that, and remember they're going to be a nation of priests, and they're getting the rules and regulations, and he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And these folks had the attention span of a gnat. You know, they got, they, they got pay, impatient. They couldn't wait. You know, they said something must have happened to Moses up there. And so they go to Moses' brother Aaron, and they say, hey, we need something to worship. These are the same people that said, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes. And yet they say, we need something to worship. And so Aaron said, uh, let me see you. Uh, take off your earrings. Give me your golden earrings. He collected all these earrings from hundreds of thousands of people, and he melted them down, and he made this calf. He made this golden calf, and he said, here, here's your God. Worship it. 
And then Moses comes down off the mountain and he finds it and he gets ticked off. And what does he do? He throws the tablets down and breaks them. And by the way, that's not a good thing to do. It was the first of three major anger fits that are recorded of Moses. And by the time he got to the third one, God basically says, sorry, you're not going to go into the promised land. So he got to go right up to seeing the promised land and then he died. But God did bury him, which is, is kind of cool. So he only, you know, the bottom line is God sent a judgment then after that on the people of Israel. And the Levites, the tribe of Levi, which Moses and Aaron were from, they went out and in defense of God's glory, they did battle against their own brothers and killed 3,000 of their brothers and sisters that day. And it was because of that that God set the Levites aside as priests for him. It was all because of that whole fiasco that Israel as a whole forfeited the right at that point to be the priests of God. It was pushed back, if you will, in time, but it was always God's promise. They had just completely forgotten about it. They thought it would always be the way it was. Priest, Levi. But this is the biggest shocker of all. Thirdly, it just shocked them that God's enemies could become his priests. It says in verse 9 again, But you, you, he's speaking to Gentiles, and you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's chosen possession. You see, they fell into the same trap that, that, that Christians today sometimes fall into, and that is when we begin to think that God wants to wipe out his enemies rather than win them over. They thought God hated Gentiles. They spent their whole life not reaching out to Gentiles, building up walls to keep them away socially, physically, and religiously. They just didn't get it. If you recall when Jesus cleansed the temple, he did it there. He cleansed the marketplace in the temple. You know where the marketplace was set up? The Jews wanted to set up this marketplace. Just put it in the court of the Gentiles. And that is why when Jesus cleansed it, he said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Because they said, they're basically saying the Gentiles aren't important. We don't want these people to get close to God. And that's why Jesus quoted from that passage in Isaiah that I read at the beginning of the service, where it says, my house will be a house of prayer for whom? For all nations, not just for the Jews. They didn't get it. God had prophesied long before. He said, I'm not only going to bless you, but through you, I am going to bless the nations. On your life notes, again, you've got some passages that we're not going to take the time to go through all these passages. You can study them later this week. But Genesis 12, 3 is, is one of them. When God goes to Abraham and says, I'm going to pick you out of all these pagan folks. I'm going to call you to, 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 to follow me, to, to serve me, to, to worship me and worship me only instead of all the pagan gods of your father. God tells him, he says, you do that and I'm going to make your progeny, your, your children, I'm going to make them like the, the sand on the seashore. I'm going to make them like the, like the stars in the sky. You can't count them. Try to count them, but you won't be able to count them. And he said, and out of that, I'm going to make a nation, and that nation is going to bless all the nations. The first little indication, not just your family, Abraham, which became known as the Jewish people, but all people will be blessed. I want you to see it through a, one particular passage that speaks to this, uh, not so much as a prophecy, but as a done deal. It's found in, in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. It says, and they, and this is the angels, they sang a new song. They're singing to Jesus. 
You are worthy to take the scroll, the title, in the scroll here, they're talking about the title deed to earth. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. In other words, he paid the price. You were slain, and with your blood, you purchased men and women for God, for the Father. Which men and women? From every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom of priests and to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Three things that they couldn't get, they couldn't understand. They couldn't understand that the Messiah would be rejected. They couldn't understand that one day all would have access to God. And they couldn't understand that even God's enemies would be his priests. Well, for the rest of our time, I want us to look at what all this means for us today, that the curtain has been torn and that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. What does it mean as we live out our lives in the marketplace, in the highways and byways, in the pools and along the streets of Sky Valley and wherever else we maybe find ourselves? How does this change things about how we live our lives? Well, in your life notes, there's a section that simply says, welcome to the priesthood over on the, on the back side. And the first thing we need to understand is this, the unique privilege and role of an Old Testament priest. Because when I say the word priest, so many of us today in our culture often think of, well, a Roman Catholic priest or an Orthodox priest or some other form of, of earthly priest. But I'm welcoming you to be a priest as portrayed in the Old Testament, if you will. And the key phrase that you need to understand here is that a priest was a mediator. A priest was a mediator, primarily a mediator. Just as in a business deal, when you have two entities in a business deal and it kind of goes sideways and, and they're, they're trying to figure things out, oftentimes you bring in someone for mediation, to mediation, to bring the two parties together to, to heal things between the parties. And in the Old Testament economy there, someone messed up and so they, they brought a lamb or, or they brought a bull to the priest and says, here's my lamb or my bull, will you offer it to God for me? And the priest would take it as, and as a mediator standing between God and man, he would sacrifice and he'd come back and say, okay, it's all good, your sacrifice has been made. And so he'd get the person off the hook, so to say, for that, for that unintentional sin there. And he would also, the priest would represent what God wanted to the people. So the priests were the, the spiritual teachers. And when people wanted to know what God thought, they, they didn't get it directly from God. They, they got it through the priest. But once you step over that line, once you faith Jesus, you do not need an earthly mediator. God is your father. You can go straight to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus said we could cry out, Abba, Father. We could approach God as our, as, our, as our daddy, which means it's a completely different situation there. Here are the things that you have because Jesus has made you a priest. First, you now have full access to God. Full, direct access to God the Father. You don't have to go through anyone else. There's two common misconceptions. They're common even within Christian circles. And they're the misconception of the holy man or woman and the misconception of the holy place. They take place when we begin to think that certain people, because of their giftedness or because of their role, they're like extra holy, extra special people. And God speaks through them in a, in a different way. And, and we end up letting them stand between us and God. We abdicate our, our, our responsibility and our right to go straight to God. And we always use them. And then the holy place misconception is the idea that God is more present in some places than others. Now, now, you can feel and experience the presence of God more in some places than others, 
But God is God, and God is everywhere. He's everywhere. Oftentimes, when I was in the military, I'd have someone, you know, would let out an expletive that involved God's name or Jesus' name, and they say, sorry, chap. And I'd say, well, God's here too. He hears you. You know, I've done it a couple times on the pickleball courts here as well. Someone uses God's name or something, they say, well, no, I'm just the chaplain, okay? He's here, though. When you get the holy place myth, you end up with a dumbed-down God where where you think that he knows what's going on in this place, but he doesn't know what's going on over in this other place. And when you have the holy man or holy woman myth, you lose the power that God has given you and your fellow believers, and you hand it over to someone else. You concentrate it in them uh, who have the giftedness of God, but they don't have exclusive rights to it. You see the difference? There are, there are certainly people that have a unique gift or, of leadership or, or teaching or prayer or faith or whatever it could be, and God uses these crooked sticks to, to draw a straight line. But we do not want to abdicate to them our access to God. I appreciate it when, when someone asks me to, to pray in their home at, at dinner or whatever, but you know what? I'm also blessed when, usually even more so, when another believer prays. I don't have to be the duty prayer. The Church of Jesus has, has people other than pastors who are given spiritual gifts. And in fact, every believer has at least one spiritual gift. Many have a mixture of gifts, a gift mix, we, as we would say. The holy man or, or holy place myth destroys this uh, belief that we are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, God's special possession. The Bible says this about your access to God. We don't need an earthly mediator. I already, I already pointed that out. You can see it in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. We can also approach God with bold confidence. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Therefore, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. The the key James said, let us therefore come boldly. Let us come boldly so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I encourage you some time to, to go and read the book of Hebrews. Other than the Gospels, it's my favorite book in the, in, the, in the New Testament. And you'll see it talks about the Old Testament priesthood. And it'll open your eyes and you'll appreciate even more what it means to be a priest within God's economy in the New Covenant. Some of our responsibilities, we can, we can approach God boldly. We can also confess our sin directly to God and move on. It tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We don't have to go to someone else to get forgiveness for our sins. We don't have to go to someone who's going to go to God then go to God. Now, hear me out. Galatians 6 does say that we're to carry one another's burdens. We're supposed to lift one another. We're supposed to pray for one another. We're supposed to encourage one another. We're supposed to support one another. But we don't have to go through another man or woman in order to get forgiveness for our sin. We can get that directly from God because we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's chosen possession. Now here's the second thing. We also have full access to God's word. We have full access to God's word. 
We don't need a priest. We don't need a pastor to read it to us, to explain every little thing to us. Now, please hear me. This isn't a, a call for us to all go solo, just like in, back in the day of the judges in the Old Testament when everyone did, as it says, what was right in their own eyes, and, and it was total, total chaos. We're part of a, a body. We're part of the body of Christ. So as iron sharpens iron, we need one another. There's some people with the gifts of helps and the gifts of mercy and some with leadership and teaching and more, and we need all of those gifts within the body. But we don't set aside our own access because of those gifts. You see the difference? Something's gone very wrong if, if I go, well, I don't need anybody else because I've got the Holy Spirit and I've got direct access to God and I have some God-given gifts of, of teaching and I'm not going to read anybody else. I'm not going to listen to anybody else. I'm not going to be challenged. It's just Walt and Jesus. I'm going to tell you, despite all the giftedness that God may have given me, despite my understanding of Scripture, the education, the years of it, I'll go sideways if I think like that. Because Christianity was never meant to be a solo thing. It's meant to be lived within community. And at the same time, we're never called to, to step away and say, well, you do it all for me. You do it for me. Here, can I pay you to do it? And that's what a lot of people do. There's this combination. One of the things we have, uh, you know, we have the ability to read the Scripture. When we step when we talk about stepping across that line and, and accepting Christ, having our sins forgiven, being adopted into his family, and being changed from the, from the inside out, the same Holy Spirit that changes you from the inside out will open your eyes as you read Scripture. In your life notes, I've got 1 Corinthians 2 and 1 John 2 there. Both of them speak about the power of the Spirit to open the Word of God to you as you read it on your own. And one of the great crimes today, I think, is, is that we have Bibles everywhere. We've got them on our shelf. We've got them on our iPads. We've got them on our phones. I think I've got probably 20 different versions of the Bible that I could just pull up on my phone right now. And yet, sadly, most people don't read the Bible very much, if at all. Most of us let other people read and study the Bible for us. Do you realize that if you have a, a Bible in your language today, you realize how incredibly blessed you are? No common Jew of Jesus' day had that. First of all, there wasn't the Gutenberg Press, so they couldn't be printed them out right and left at that time. The synagogue would, would have a copy, and you, you might be able to, to read it or to look at it there, but you certainly couldn't take it home and, and keep it with you. We have a privilege today to have the Scripture in our own language readily available to us, and not everybody this day today has that. There's people in China, and some of you would consider this sacrilege, but I think God understands. In China, they will take a Bible and they will rip it up into the different chapters or the different books of the Bible, and they will assign certain believers to memorize those, those chapters because they don't know if they're going to have it more. And oftentimes the person's name will be changed so that if you get Isaiah, which, man, that's a lot of memorization, your name would become Isaiah, and you would be known as the believer who knows the book of Isaiah. Hopefully it would be the guy that gets Jude. Real short little, little chapter there at the, near the end. But you know, there's, there's believers today around the world that don't have access to the Bible for themselves. Do you realize that it was only 500 years ago that William Tyndale was executed because he dared translate the Bible into English and say that the common man should read the Scripture, that it wasn't limited to the priests and the, and the, and the scholars of that day? Now we've got it everywhere. We've got it on our shelves in our office. And you know, I always wonder, though, that when I see it in someone's car up at Walmart in the parking lot or something, I always wonder, does that person actually take it inside when they go home, or they just leave it up there for everybody to see when they're out there? I don't know. Just something I've always wondered. 
You have a, a right to read God's Word. The key, though, is not to just have a Bible. It's not like some kind of good luck piece that you keep around. The key is to actually read it and then put into practice what you read. To read it, to read it carefully. And, and you have, a, you have a, a right and a responsibility to be a self-feeding and, and fact-checking Christian. That's what a priest could do. Now, self-feeding kind of speaks for itself here, and I'll come back to it in just a moment. But fact-checking, have you? we just went through a major political cycle, and you know there's these sites that, that check the facts on what's being said and commercials and things like that. And, on, and I don't know about you, but oftentimes I find that both sides are, are fibbing there. Well, you have a right to, to fact-check God's Word and, and what's going on and what's being said. And anything that's said from up here, anything that I teach, measure it against Scripture. I encourage you to read the Bible for yourself, measuring it. If you have a question about it, talk to me about it. Let's look at it. And I realize that some of you may not like to read Scripture, whether it's because you're dyslexic or, or you may just not like to read it all. Uh, I can't imagine it personally, but it may be just simple there that you, can't, that you, can't, um, that you just don't read. Find some other way to, to bring God's Word in, into your life and listen to it, to, to think about it, to internalize it, and make it a part of your life. The idea of a self-feeding Christian is that you're not depending upon someone else to put it in the blender and then spoon-feed you what you need. One way or another, you're taking it in yourself, you're listening to it, you're getting it, you're thinking it. And then the fact-shaking thing. As you're doing that, Measure Scripture against Scripture. In Acts chapter 17, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and, and, and Luke was part of Paul's entourage there, and he, and he tells us in Acts chapter 17 about a, some people there in Berea, who, which was a city in Greece. And it says there in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. I wonder if the Thessalonians ever saw this and said, Wait a minute. What about us? This is something that, that Luke noticed as they were ministering. He said, The Bereans were a more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness and what? Examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now this is Paul, the great evangelist, the great church planner, the, the, the missionary. He, you know, this was Paul speaking, but what did they do? They measured it. They examined the scriptures to see what Paul was saying. They were like, show me, show me. So you have a right to not only be self-feeding, but you have the right to be fact-checking. And as I said, don't go solo because you need, just as you need to fact-check the teachers in your life, you also need to be fact-checked yourself. You are a holy, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen possession. You have full access to God's word. And thirdly, you can now minister. Yes, you are a minister. You can speak as God gifts you and leads you to speak. You can teach and give counsel as the Spirit gifts you and leads you to. You can pray for people. You can visit them in homes and in hospitals when it's not COVID or in jail. You can do what the Spirit gifts you to do as the Spirit leads you. I want to draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 4 here. Ephesians 4.11, it says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. God didn't call the professional clergy 
to do all the ministry. He gave people who were apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers so that we could equip God's people, you folks, to do the ministry. And that's the, the word ministry or service is the, is the Greek word that's used there, so that the body of Christ may be built up. And not only can you minister, but God expects you to minister in his name using the spiritual gifts that he's given to you in the way that he has wired you personality-wise, etc. The late John Wimber was the leader of a, of a movement called the Vineyard Movement. And um, some of you may have heard of it. And, and he used to tell this story in light of this about a lady that came up to him and was all upset because uh, she, she knew of someone in need. She talked to this lady, this other lady that needed some help, and she passed it on to the church and, and, and said, hey, you folks need to, you need to help. And so she goes to Pastor John, and she says, how come the church isn't doing what it's supposed to do? And he goes, I feel so, so bad. I'm really sorry. We totally failed because we had someone assigned to do that. Jesus had someone that was supposed to be doing that. The problem is the person was you. Because we are the body of Christ, there should never be a statement, well, why doesn't the church? We are the church. It should be, why don't we? I had a pastor friend that I later recruited in the Navy, and he became a chaplain and retired as a captain chaplain about four years ago, uh, Ray Stewart. And he was our pastor in Charleston, South Carolina about 30 years ago. And, and Ray uh, had this thing, you know, someone came along and said, well, pastor, we need this ministry in the church. We need to do this. Like, we need to have a fall festival. You know what he did? He said, okay, Luann, you're in charge of it. You get to lead it. If God's put it on your heart, you, you get to lead it. But there's a lot of people, they'll sit back and they'll say, the church needs to do this, the chapel needs to do that, and all, but say, okay, are you, you going to help do it? Well, no, 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 I'm just, I'm just an idea rat. I like to come up with the ideas and pass them on for you to execute them. We're the body of Christ. It changes everything here. It's kind of like a couple weeks ago when we talked about holiness. We, we get these weird ideas that, and, and cultural things, and they blind our eyes, to, and we don't understand that we are the ones that are to be doing the ministry because he gives us the gifting and the mercy and the grace in order to do it. The same way that he, he chose Abraham. He pulled Abraham out of a pagan nation, an idol worshiper, and he said, I want to do something special through you, Abram. His name was Abram at the time. And that's what he's done with us. He's called us to be a royal priesthood. He's called us to be a chosen people, to be a holy nation, his special possession. So let's live like it. Welcome to the priesthood. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry at Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.